relationship between a father and a son than the picture that's portrayed by the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. Yet, at the same time, we know that they're all part of the same trinity. And we've talked about many, many times the reason why God uh, transformed himself into the Son of God. And we understand now better how that all works and lays out and one of the great questions that many, many people can never figure out. But we, I told you that when God wrote the Bible, he wrote the Bible around his son. And every writer of every book in the Bible, of course, the Bible is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. God made sure that his son was portrayed in a different way in each book. Now, we've come through the books of the Bible and and really focused on, uh, on how that the Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed in each book of the Bible, yet at the same time, there's so many things that go along with that. And we have been in this study now that originally, when I first thought about doing it, thought I could move through it fairly quickly, but now we know that there's so many things here that we just need to stop and see uh, from where you're at. This is a fairly young church. We've only been here uh, a little over eight years. We started with 12 people, and yet God has multiplied it to what you see today. We probably have 30 or people who are not even here today who are out of town or whatever, various situations. But uh, the thing we built it on from day one was the Bible. And uh, we believe that the Bible is the absolute thing that you and I need in our life, and it covers all the issues that we're going to get into in faith and practice. So as you start coming through these books and we start to see how Christ is portrayed, it's really hard not to take the time to lay out for you because so many of you have such a desire to learn the Bible. And it's very obvious that we come through our first Bible basics class, really our first two. And you did the homework and gave it, turned it into me. It was very obvious that many of you, if not most of you, are seriously searching to learn your Bible. So, you know, it's responsibility on my part as we start coming through these books. If there's issues that need to be resolved and that will help you grow and give you maybe in a short period of time a major piece of your Bible, those are the things that I want to deal with. And uh, when we come to the book of 1 Corinthians, we know that Christ is portrayed as uh, Christ our Lord. And we also know that the church at Corinth is the most troubled church in the New Testament. Uh, Paul uh, deals with them chapter by chapter. And in many cases, most cases really, there's multiple issues in each chapter that they're really out of touch on. The church at Corinth has rightly been called the most carnal church in the New Testament. They are, they are a bunch of spiritual babies who can just never get anything right when the Bible comes to it. They, they've just got all kinds of problems. They have bloated themselves and puffed themselves up to the point where they've actually got a spiritual hierarchy built within the whole church system. They have set themselves up on spiritual levels that doesn't even exist. When I taught you church history a while back, and we took a year and came through church history, you remember the guy I told you about that was out there during the time of the rise of the Gnostics? And the Gnostics were a group of people who basically felt that they had a superior spiritual intellect over the common man. And Gnosticism was big back in the 2nd and 3rd and the 4th century. One of those Gnostics was a guy by the name of Simon Stylitis. And Simon Stylitis' claim to fame was that he claimed to be more spiritual than other people and claimed to be, to be on a 
regular basis getting higher and higher in his spiritual knowledge. Truth of the matter is, he didn't have enough spiritual truth to put in lest I have a blind mosquito, but that's beside the point. What he did was, over the course of 30 years, he's our first Christian flagpole sitter. He started out sitting on a pole that was 10 feet high. In the course of the next 30 years, it went from 10 feet high to 20 feet high to 30 feet high. Uh, I'm not sure what the final height was before he probably fell and broke his neck. But the problem was this. He was sitting on different levels of poles to show the world how he was gaining higher spirituality with God. And that every level of the pole up the pole uh, signified that he was closer to God and, and above the common ordinary people who were walking on the ground. That was Simon Stylitis back around 150, 180 A.D. And, of course, to us that sounds ludicrous and ridiculous, and it certainly is, but that's exactly what the church at Corinth is doing. In chapter 1, we found out where they're arguing about who baptized who. And the issue is that if the, if the Apostle Paul baptized somebody and just some common ordinary pastor baptized somebody else, that the person baptized by Paul was at a great spiritual level than the person that was baptized by uh, the ordinary pastor. They're chapter 3, they're, they're arguing about who won who to Christ. And the issue there is that if, again, if Paul won you to Christ, then you're spiritually farther along and on a higher spiritual plane than of Joe Schmo, who's just a deacon or somebody in the church, won you to Christ. They're tagging some kind of spiritual relevance to their experiences. And you know what happens when you start basing your spirituality on experiences. Uh, the flesh jumps in, and pretty soon everybody's trying to top the other person's experience. That's what we've got in the church at Corinth. And uh, we come to chapter 13, and we're ready to lay this out today because each chapter we have seen the issues. And now in chapter thir uh, 12, 13, and 14, we come to three chapters that form a study for us on spiritual gifts. And we pretty much laid out and defined from the Bible standpoint every aspect of spiritual gifts. You should have a good handle on it now. We gave one of the greatest definitions we could ever give you a couple of weeks back that really told you that spiritual gifts uh, form on two basic concepts. The church at Corinth wanted the spiritual gift. They wanted the power of God. And we talked about how the spiritual gifts really represent the power of God, and everybody wants those. But we also saw the other aspect to the other aspect to the power of God was the character of God. You cannot have the power of God in your life without the character of God in your life. And this is the problem with the church at Corinth. They're a bunch of spiritual babies. We talked about how that they mirror today what we have in our own Christianity, the charismatic movement. They almost exactly are a mirrored image of what they were back in the church of Corinth. And last week, we started to talk about the issue of speaking in tongues. And last week, I laid out for you the Bible definition of speaking in tongues based on the Word of God. I don't know how you could get a more understandable or easy definition of that concept uh, than we laid out last week. And if, you're, if you do the work, if you really spend the time to get the material, work it out, I've had several people come to my home this week, and, and we went through it and helped them lay it all out. I, you know that every week I, uh, I take, if, if you want to learn your Bible or you want help with something in your Bible, I'll spend an hour a week or every other week or once a month with anybody. Uh, you don't have to be a member of the church. If you've got things that you want to learn about the Bible, my job as pastor is to help you learn those. 
And uh, this week, I've spent much of my week talking about it. Thursday night it came up, which I, that was a great thing that we talked about it. And that's how you put it all together. But if you do the work, and you get what I lay out on Sunday morning and then bring it back either to me or what you don't understand or we clean it up on Thursday night that you get the handle on it, you're going to have a major portion of your Bible down because you're going to run into this. It's the first issue, as I told you last week, I ran into as a brand new Christian way back in the 70s. So now we understand that tongues were always a known language, Acts chapter 2. We also know that tongues were given to the nation of Israel, never given to the church. They were sign gifts along with healing and all the other sign gifts that are listed for you in Mark chapter 16, verse 16. And uh, they were prophesied all the way back in Isaiah chapter 28. We now know that from a Bible standpoint, tongues were never for the church. We now know that there's a 1,900-year gap between when tongues ceased back in the book of Acts and uh, no one in church history spoke with tongues till the modern 1900 charismatic movement starts uh, in uh, Azula Street Mission in Los Angeles and then at the Bethel Bible College in Topeka, Kansas. We know that to the Jews, tongues were a language. We know that the Jew, we studied it last week, the Jews had went into captivity in 606 B.C. with the deportation of the nation of Israel, and for 400 years they'd been scattered and now they had lost, many of them had lost their native tongue and lost their language, which was Hebrew. So when God regathers them, he gives the apostles. And these are why you have 18 nations lifted in Acts chapter 2 that shows you that these are people in Jews in different nations who have lost their native tongue, that they hear the marvelous works of God in their own language. And that's what tongues really was. And today we want to begin chapter 13, and we want to look at some things. And I warn you already, chapter 13, got 13 verses in it. This is not a very good place to lay down your basis for speaking in tongues. This chapter's been called the great love chapter. And it's called that because you'll see in a moment in verses 1 through 8, it lays out the love relationship that Christ has for the believer and it shows us that the same relation, that is the same relationship that you and I should have with each other. And, uh, you know, that's obviously what the, not what the church of uh, Corinth is doing with it today. And as you read that passage, you've heard me say many, many times, uh, based on Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1, that you have to have a balance in everything that you do. Bible says in Proverbs 27, 1, that a false balance is abomination in the sight of God, but a just weight is his delight. I think balance is probably the hardest thing that a Christian has to get and a Christian has to keep. But we have to have balance in everything in our life. And when you had to get, finally get a balance, then you've got to balance the balance that you just balanced. And it's always an issue when that's the importance of it. And, you know, an out-of-balance Christian will always uh, have some problems. You'll find that they get out of balance in many things. Many times your emotions get out of balance. Many times your, 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 your doctrine gets out of balance. It's, it's all of those things. And yet you see out-of-balance churches. You have some churches that all they do is teach all the time and they never preach. That's out of balance. Then you have some churches that preach all the time, but they never teach. That's out of balance. The Bible teaches that we need to have a balance in what we do. And you have to preach and you have to teach and you have to mix it up and that forms the balance. You know, the modern day charismatic movement again, they follow um, right in the footsteps of the church at Corinth. We hear a lot today about God is love. 
and uh, charismatics are big on love. And, uh, you know, God is love. The world, uh, the secular world, uh, the liberal Christian world, you know, that uh, teaches the aspect that God is love and everything. They teach that God is such a loving God that there's no hell, that there's no judgment, that how could a loving God uh, ever send anybody to hell? You see, that's the, there's the two perspectives. The liberal gets over there and he says, how in the world could God ever send anybody to hell? But if in reality, I look at the same thing and I ask myself, how could God ever want to take anybody to heaven? You see, the, the bottom line is that they lose the concept of God. Somebody says, God is love. I asked a person one time if they knew where that term came from, and they said, well, it's in the Bible. After about 30 minutes of trying to find it, uh, they never found it. And I told them that the concept God is love didn't ever start in the Bible. That came from Gandhi. That was his famous saying. But the charismatic and the and the people who step outside, they take the love of God so far, and I know God loves us, and He's a loving God. There's no question about that. But they take it and get it out of balance, and it leads to the teaching that you find today that, that it was in the church at Corinth that, uh, that everything that, that good happens to you in your life is of God, and everything that is bad that happens to you in life is of the devil. And that's totally out of balance. I mean, if you want to find a real case study on that, study the book of Job. Better yet, you can study every character in the Bible. The devil can't do one thing to you that God doesn't allow him to do. In fact, when you study Job and all that Job went through, when you go back there and you look at the first introduction where God and the devil are talking about Job, it wasn't the devil that brought Job's name up. It was God that brought Job's name up. And we lose that concept and we get a mis application of, of what God's love really is. Simply put, and, and you need to understand this because this is a very practical approach to this chapter as we start to get into it. A God who is all love is a perverted God. You know, love without hate is not real love. We've talked about how that everything in the Bible is a contract. You don't go three chapters before, or three verses before you find light versus darkness. And I mean, if you love cleanliness, then what? Then you hate dirt. I mean, if you love your wife and your kids, then you hate anything that will ever try to hurt them. I mean, you can't have a, a love without hate is a perverted concept of love. So the Bible says in Psalms 18, verse 30, for God as his ways is perfect. God's a perfect God. And then it tells us in Psalms 139, verse 22, that God hates with a perfect hatred. You see, God loves with a perfect love, and God hates with a perfect hatred. You know, every Christian out of hate, well, we think that hate's a bad thing. It is out of balance. But when you put it in the balance of the Word of God, hate, out of, it's a God-given emotion. You ought to hate sin in your life. You ought to hate being out of fellowship with God. You ought to hate the evil that is in this world that wants to destroy everything that goes on. You ought to hate unrighteousness. You ought to hate the time that you spend out of fellowship with God. Said you said that twice. Yeah, I said it twice because you had to listen to it twice. <laughs> you got to remember something. We talk about the love of God, and I know God's a God of love. There's no question about it. And I know that God loves, and God is a, is a great God, and His mercy and His greatness is, goes on forever. I understand that. But what you've got to understand when you start to get into chapters like this and this great love chapter is the love of God. Where does that start? 
I mean, you know, I love my dog. I love my, I love my kids. I, I, I love this. I love that. But where does that love really start? The love of God, where that is rooted, is in God's holiness. And you've got to see that. And all of God's love for you and for me, it rests in God's Son. You know that God can't love you and me apart from Jesus Christ? Do you realize that? You realize that the whole process of salvation, the whole concept of spiritual circumcision, of separating your flesh from your, uh, your soul, and then God sealing your soul with the Holy Spirit of God, and Jesus Christ living inside you this morning. Do you understand what that whole process is about? It's about that if God did not do that, and did not put the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus Christ, inside you, God could never love you. But, you know, you realize that in the, in the Old Testament, when God went through uh, the nation of Israel, everything in that camp had to be absolutely taken out that was against anything that was holy with God. You realize that that's why back in the Old Testament, when people uh, have problems or they break the law, they got to go outside the camp for a number of days. They can't stay in the camp because God cannot fellowship with anything that's unholy. And that's why the only way that God fellowshiped with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was down through the leaders that he built a perfect relationship on. Most people don't even know that. If you were average Joe Blow in the nation of Israel, God didn't come down and have a relationship with you. He had a relationship with you through the man that he picked that would, would, would be the one that would take the message of God to the people. And just by a wild stroke of coincidence, every one of those men in the Old Testament are a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why? Because in the New Testament, the only way God can fellowship with you and me is through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why He put Him inside you today if you're saved. Because God's love starts and is rooted in the death of His Son on Calvary's cross and His perfect sacrifice. God loves holiness. God hates sin. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There's a contrast between the two. John 3.16, that famous verse we all know makes it clear that apart from God's Son, Christ, God loves no man. And this is why you have the doctrine of the advocacy of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of propitiation, the doctrine of reconciliation. I gave you before on a Thursday night the 12 doctrines that go along with the day you got saved. And all of them basically say a different aspect about the same thing. God cannot love you apart from loving you through his son. Now, let me ask you a question. How does God even muster enough strength to, to want an unsaved person and, 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 and deal with him? How does God do that? I mean, if God is holy, you see, this is the Bible doctrine on it. If God is a holy God, and He is, and God is a righteous God, and He is, how does a righteous God who is holy, who, who could not even be around anything that is sinful because of His holy nature, how could He ever come to you and me when we were in an unsafe state? How could He ever do that? And the answer to that is, is He does that in Christ. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, you know what God did? He put all blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And when God looks at you and me unsaved, he looks at us through the blood of his son in anticipation that you'll accept that, and that's the only way God can fellowship with you. 
That's what the Bible teaches. John 3.36 says that, that, uh, that uh, if you're an unsaved man or a woman here today, apart from Christ, the sinner, you already are abiding in God's wrath. There's nothing personal to it. It's holiness versus unholiness. And you have to keep this all in mind when you talk about God's love because when you get into this chapter, uh, you've got to see some things. Now, I want to begin reading here in chapter 13, and I want to pick it up in, in verse 1, and follow along here with me. It says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I have become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemingly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail, and whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we come to this passage today in chapter 13, and we, Lord, we seek your guidance on it. Help us to learn today. These are good people who have come here today because they want to learn your word. And Lord, uh, if they've come to learn it from me, they're in bad shape today, Father, because if you don't open up our hearts and open up our minds and, and open up our, our tongues and teach us through your word, if the Holy Spirit of God doesn't illuminate what needs to be said today and carry it to the hearts of God people, then I have nothing that I can say. And I pray for these good people today that you'll help them grasp the Bible. We're not here just to entertain. We're here to learn. We're here, Father, because we know that you've given us a job to do as a church. And our job is to, is to take the Word of God and translate that into our own hearts for a work for God. And, Father, I pray that you'll take us today and lead and guide us into all truth. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, there's some things here that we need to get clear in light of what we've already talked about in, in weeks gone by. Now, I, I, I mentioned this to you Thursday night. This chapter, as well as the book of 1 Corinthians, was written in about 57 A.D. Now, I don't know how you want to match that in your Bible, but that would be around Acts chapter 20. The idea that the, the day of Pentecost had something to do with the church. The idea that Pentecost was something that we are supposed to carry through in the church. I think we probably nailed this subject very clearly Thursday night when I took you back and showed you the, the feast back in the Old Testament and showed you how that they, don't, they do nothing for the church, but they really represent the history of the nation of Israel. The first three represent the Old Testament. That Feast of Weeks represents the 400 years. The Day of Pentecost represents the first coming of Christ. And then you have no feast the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth month. 
and that represents the church age. And then you have three feasts that uh, toward the end there, and they all represent the nation of Israel. You have the Feast of Trumpets. That's the regathering of Israel in 1948. You have the Feast of Atonement. That's the, that's the tribulation period where Israel atones for their sins against God. And then you have the Feast of Tabernacles, which deals with the second coming of Christ. So it ought to be clear now that the day of Pentecost was never, ever, under any circumstances, put in any church scenario in the New Testament for anything. And when you come to Acts chapter 1, you're in a series there from chapter 1 to chapter 7 that strictly deals with the nation of Israel. No one in any church is or has been told to observe the day of Pentecost. This here is 21 or 22 years past that day of the church, uh, Acts chapter uh, 2. We're in the Paul, deep into Paul's ministry. This takes place during his third missionary trip. In the next chapter, he goes down to Jerusalem, and he's put in jail, and his ministry's over, basically. And so this church uh, has taken what was once given to the nation of Israel and now has tried to bring it into the church. This form of heresy is not new. We saw it in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, we have a group that are called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers in the book of Galatians were a group that went in and they went into this New Testament church and they said, oh man, you're a New Testament church, that's great. You believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, amen, that's good. But you know what? For the church, you not only have to believe in Jesus Christ, but you have to keep the Old Testament law. And Paul takes them to task. And that's where he talks about if any man preaches another gospel. And that's exactly what they were doing. They were saying that, okay, in the book of Galatians, you got to believe in Jesus Christ, but you got to keep the law too. And we know from the Bible that when Jesus Christ came, he fulfilled the law. I can't keep the law. I don't have to keep the law. Christ kept it for me. But we see that this is not new, that churches are getting into problems that are, uh, that are heresy. And this is what the church at Corinth has done. They've taken tongues, which was once given to the nation of Israel. Oh, well, let's look at verse 1. It pretty much states it for us. Look at verse 1. Now, though I speak with the tongues of men, one, and of angels, two, and have not charity, I would become as a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. So we see we've seen two things. They've done two things with it. First of all, they've taken the tongues of men. That would be the tongues of Acts chapter 2 which were never given to the church, and they brought them into the church. If that wasn't bad enough, they've now developed some kind of tongues of angels. And in the modern charismatic movement today, that will be the gibberish that you talk about and hear them saying in some known language that, that is just a bunch of jibber-jabber. They call it a heavenly language. They call it the tongues of angels. They basically say, well, that's a heavenly language between me and God. And you know where this goes. It goes today just like it did back here. Because what the church of Corinth is doing, it wasn't enough that somebody got up and began to speak in tongues that they shouldn't have, another language. Somebody had to top that. So the way that you top that is, by the way, you have a language that you and God only speak in, and you exclude everybody else, and, boy, and then you can see whatever message is the better message shows the more spirituality the person is. And that's what they're doing. They're coming to the place where they're speaking in some unknown tongue, some jibber-jabbish that nobody can understand, and then claiming that God, tongues was never anything in your Bible, anywhere. I'll give you $60 million. You show me where tongues is anything but a known language. You say, well, you couldn't, you don't have that much money. I could get it together before you find the verse. <laughs> it's not in there. 
Tongues were always a known language. And this is what the church at Corinth is doing. Again, they have formed a new unknown tongue, a spiritual plateau that certain ones of them get. We've got a whole bunch of Simon Skylitises here. This great unknown tongue only between me and God, and I get some great message from God that you have to depend on me for me to give it to you. Now, and that's a problem, and I, I might as well just shoot my whole wad here this morning and talk to you. That's a problem that we get into in higher education when it comes to the Bible. The, man, the minute a man tells you, you've got to understand Greek and Hebrew to learn this Bible and know this Bible and have really a relationship with God, you're dealing with the same issue just in a Baptist circle now. May I make a statement to you and just get it out of the way? The Greek and the Hebrew will do you nothing for this Bible. Why, the Greek text that most pastors use today, don't kid me about it, the Greek text that most pastors use today to tell you what the words mean are not even the Greek text that this Bible came from because nobody uses that Greek text anymore. Don't, give me a, don't kid me about it. You want to talk about Greek text, I'll stay up all night with you. I've been down that road many, many times. I'm telling you. When you got to depend on me standing up here and telling you that this word, you read a passage and you try to lay it out, and I tell you well, that word really doesn't mean that, and then you got to come to me so I can tell you what your Bible really means, you just threw the Holy Spirit of God out the window. You don't need me. Somebody said one time, well, you got to have the Greek and the Hebrew to understand the Bible. And I said, well, if that's true, you realize there's less than one millionth of one percent of the world's population. You realize that Greek and Hebrew are the two hardest languages in the world? You realize there's less than one millionth of one percent of the world's population that speaks the Greek and the Hebrew of the Bible fluently enough to do it. So you're telling me, yeah, that's Gnosticism right there. Get some stupid little pastor that goes around and gets a few Greek lexicons and fings up Greek's words and thinks he's going to impress somebody. Let me tell you something. God wrote a book that every idiot on this planet could grasp if you just got the determination to get in it and read it and study it. Amen. You let somebody else become your Holy Spirit. Somebody says, well, you believe the Bible is the Word of God in English. That's right. What, all the people, what about all the world the people in the world don't speak English? What about all the people in the world don't speak Greek or Hebrew? You idiot. I say that with charity and love in Jesus' name. I feel better now that I got that off my chest. Hey, any man who tries to tell you that you got to get the Bible from him, that he has to, he has the key because he knows. Some, you ever been in a, a foreign country where everybody spoke the language and you didn't? You ever notice how you just came back from Turkey? You speak Turkish? No. <laughs> they're all sitting around, you know, and they talk in English with you for a little bit, and then you, you have some kind of business deal you're doing or something, and then they all break into their jibber-jabberish, and you're wondering, are they going to kill me? Are they going to send me home? Are they going to take the deal? What is going on? Anytime anybody holds anything over you, they have the advantage of you. And that's the thing about Bible-believing Christianity. We're all in the same playing field. I may be a little farther. There are no experts when it comes to the Bible. There are no scholars when it comes to the Bible. And, and the quicker you learn that, the better off you're going to be. Somebody says, well, he's a Bible scholar. Well, that's like a brontosaurus, isn't it? <laughs> What's a Bible scholar? He's an expert in the Bible. I've learned after 40-plus years, there are no experts in the Bible. 
We're all students. We're just on different levels, but don't take it past the student level. You'll get an attitude of pride that you think you're better than somebody else. And I tell you all the time, brother, if God can teach me the Bible, he can teach you the Bible. If I can learn it, anybody can learn it. But that's what they've done in Corinth. That's what Christians always do. They set up some kind of system that keeps you under their control. That every time you want to move up the next level, they beat you down because they have the language or the message from God that tells you you shouldn't do that, that you can't even understand it. At the church of Corinth, they're a bunch of spiritual babies. How many times did Paul say they're puffed up a bunch of Pharisees who have again misused and abused the clear teaching of the Bible to get themselves as some kind of super spiritual individual. Why, the word charismatic itself, you know what it means? It means gifted one. It comes out of the old Gnostic mindset with stylitis, the first, second, and third century, that somebody that's a charismatic is gifted. They have a greater relationship with God, closer to God. So God speaks to them in some heavenly language, and all you poor idiots out there have to depend on them. They have taken what in chapter 12, verse 28, Paul listed in the order of their importance, he put tongues number eight. And now they've elevated to number one and made it the most important thing you can have in a church when it isn't supposed to be in this church at all. Now, in verse 1, we begin to see what I said last week. And I think I even mentioned it earlier today. He says in 13.1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. You see, have not charity. You find charity eight times in this chapter. Before we get through this morning, you're going to understand how important charity is, and more important than that, you're going to have a Bible definition of it. You see, the tongues of men and angels, that's what they're putting the emphasis on. That represents the power of God. It's just what I said. They want the power of God, but charity represents the character of God. And they've got the power of God, they have no character of God. And I'll tell you right now, you'll never have the power of God in your life till you first get the character of God because just like God's love is rooted in holiness, so is God's power in your life. Well, the Bible says, be holy for I am holy. They want the power of God, but they lack the character of God. And Paul says you're like a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. You're just a bunch of noise, no melody to it, no harmony to it, just noise. Then there's something else you need to see here. If your Bible, when it comes down through here, when it says charity, if your Bible says love, you got the wrong Bible. You see, all the new translations change that word and change it to love. Now, I'll tell you why they do that. First of all, they get the different Greek text that the King James Bible came from. So the Greek text that they get it from, which is the Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, the Roman Catholic manuscripts, it does have the word love in it. And so they take the word out because we're all about love today. And then you get into the, oh, the agape love and the philo love and all that stuff. And, oh, it's just a wonderful little thing. We could sit around and sing kumbaya at home hands and, and roast marshmallows. When that text was very popular back in the dark ages, they sang, held hands saying kumbaya, ave maria, and they toasted Christians. Over the open fire. 
That's where that text came from. Of course, I'm sure you know that. And you're going to find that all new translations change the word charity and make the word love. You see, love in the 20 and 21st century has many, many, many meanings. It's like the book of 1 John. I don't think I ever picked up one commentary in my life have I ever read, and I probably have been two, two, three hundred on the book of 1 John that men wrote about. Every one of them says that the theme of 1 John is love. But when you start to read the book, you find that that's not what the theme of 1 John is. I don't know how you could read 1 John and find 27 times in five little chapters he uses the word to know or knowing, to know God, to know of God. How in the world could you read that and see 27 times the word there, key word there is know or to knowing, and then come up with the word that the theme is love? Unless you're just a 20th century apostate Christian. Because that's exactly what we do with the word love today. That's exactly what we do with God. You know why the, 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 the writers, of, uh, commentators on 1 John tell you the theme is love? And never get to the point that the theme is knowing? I'll tell you why. Because that's what modern 20 and 21st century Christianity does. You try to love God before you know God. We fall in love with everything. I tell my kids all the time, they say, well, I love that dress. Why do you waste time loving something that can't love you back? I love those shoes. As Christians, we should never love inanimate objects. There's no point to it. It suggests that we don't understand the definition of love. Well, I love that car. Well, I love this house. Well, I love this restaurant. You see, we take the word love and we use it for everything. And most of the time, the way we use it, it means nothing about anything because the thing that we're loving can't love us back. You love your shoes when they're new, but when the soles wear out, you throw them away. You don't love them anymore. You love your car when it's shiny and new, but after 100 plus thousand miles, you trade it in. And you don't love it anymore. <laughs> you love your house, but after 18 or 20 or 30 some years, the plumbing goes out, pipes get clogged, drains start to back up, you sell and buy a new bigger one. You don't love it anymore. Now, you know what? So you get married, and after 20, 30 years, Five or ten years anymore, you don't love them anymore. So you get a new one, just like you did the house, just like you did the car, just like you did your boat, just like you did everything you do. That's 20th century American Christianity. That's why somebody can come down to church and get saved, come to church two or three weeks, then you never see them again. You see, we fall in love with God, and you fall out of love with God. Unless you learn to love God first, and you learn to love Him and you get to know him first, because to know him is to love him, it doesn't mean anything. That's why people who get married, you know, get married, you know, in two or three weeks after meeting somebody, in most cases it doesn't work. Sometimes it does, but most of the time it doesn't. That's why when we go through life and everything that we do, we're impulsive. We want to have it now. We see something in the window. Oh, I got to have that. I love it. When you get it home two weeks later, you've seen something else you love now, so you don't love that anymore. And we do the same thing with God. That's why some of you don't love him today like the day you got saved. It's, a, it's, a, it's the exact answer. That's why some of you are cold, hard, and indifferent to the things of God today. It's the very answer. 
You never learned how to love him. You fell in love with him. And then what? Something else came along and you fell out of love with him. You never learned to know him. That's why the theme of 1 John isn't love. The theme of 1 John is knowing. And that's why when you come down through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you don't change the word charity to the, to the word love. The word, the word charity is the epitome of the word love. Charity is the purest form of the word love. The Bible carries definitions for these words within the Bible itself. You know, I've found it's just so true. I found that most of God's people who say they love God, they really don't as far as God's concerned. I mean, we live in a dream world of Christianity for the most part. Now, I know that that maybe is not true with most of you here, and I, I, I'm saying that, but it's true when I'm over. I've been in this business for a lot, a lot of years. And if there's anything I learned about real basic love that is true love, it always associates itself with the object in question. John 14, 23 says, If a man love me, he'll keep my word. You see, God's love, real love, is associated with the word. Do you love him this morning? Don't answer back, but do you love him this morning? How much time you spent in his word this week? Oh, I love him, I love him, I love him. Really? And how much time did you chalk up in the old black book this week? Well, you don't understand how busy I was. No, neither does God. You see, we live in a very cheap Christianity, a dream world in our own minds, because we think the world, word we have for the definition of love, I guarantee it's not the same one he has. John 14, 15 says, if a man love me, he'll keep my commandments. The, he said at one time over there, he says, he says, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Now, how do you love God and continue to live your godless worldly lifestyle and then you continue to talk about how much you love God. It may work in your brain cells in the 21st Laodicea in Christianity, but it does not work with God. That's where the church at Corinth was. That's exactly where they were. And this is the whole concept that we've got. The word charity in your King James Bible is the purest form of the word love. God loves in a perfect love. God hates in a perfect hate. So when God talks about the love that he has for you and the love that you and I are to have for each other, it means God's unconditional love. Love without expecting anything back. Love without any ulterior motive. And the example of that that you all should know is Christ's love for us. Day by day, unconditional, even when we're unlovable, he still loves me. Now, that's real Christian love. You see, real Christian love is based on one concept, and it's the concept of charity. We've all been down at the plaza or go to some place. You go anywhere now. You see these guys out there, homeless, need food, need help. I never saw one that said need work. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but this is a syndicated thing. They probably make more money doing that than you do going to work. And, uh, I mean, they all wear dirty clothes and they all look like they're scraggly and all that, but they all got $400 cell phones if you just follow them around long enough. <laughs> but my point is this. I'm sure there's people in this world who need handouts. 
When I drive down there and I go down wherever I go and I see a guy on the street corner down there panhandling or now they're even in the Raytown. And uh, you go to the grocery store and somebody will come out and tell you a sad story. And you know, they'll try to ask you for just a couple bucks. I was one night about 11.30 at night. I, and, uh, you know, I, I, somebody came to my door, looked out the door, and there's some young guy out there, and I didn't know what it was. I opened the door a little bit, and he says, hey, he says, I'm not going to hurt you or anything. He says, I just need to, I just got back from Iraq, and I just, you know, I just, you know, I, I, you know and I just, I don't have any money for a place to stay, and I just saw your light was on, and, and I just thought maybe you could give me a handout. Well, you know what? I gave him five bucks. Knowing at the time, what are you laughing at? <laughs> Maybe we should switch messages and preach on speeding tickets this morning. You think that would help you any? <laughs> I mean, it's pretty bad when you get so many speeding tickets, the judge says, Hi, Jamie, how are you? Come on in. <laughs> oh, I will take your check. <clears throat> And, you know, so two weeks later, I see the same car out front. He's going to the neighbor lady across the street. What are you going to do? You know what? I look at those things. You know what I think? I gave him that $5 out of the goodness of my heart. And that's how I deal with it. You know what? I gave it, I gave it to you. It's between you. You want to sham me? That's fine. I, I, I took the gamble. I lost. Bottom line is this, between you and God. But I never look at those things. I never think of those things. I never drive down the road going someplace to see somebody on the road wanting a handout that I think to myself, you know what? I was standing on the street corner of life when God gave me the handout of salvation. Amen. That's me on that corner. That's me. That's me so many years ago that I was standing there with my shine up. I wasn't just homeless. I was hopeless. I wasn't just homeless and hopeless. I was helpless. And I stood on that street corner and God drove up to the light and by the grace of God, the light turned red and he gave me a handout. That's charity. That's charity. And that's why it's not the word love, it's the word charity because charity carries with it the purest form of God's love and it's based on one concept. God unconditionally giving his son to die on the cross for you and me and that love he had for us through his son and based on God giving it to me unconditionally and to us, then we give our love back to him unconditionally. It's just that simple. God gave me charity. Let me tell you something. Love that doesn't give is not real love. You can't always take in life. One of my daughters sent me, an e- uh, sent me a thing on a website of a ch- huge church here in Kansas City. I won't tell you who it was. Didn't any point to it. But it was funny because it was a thing that how do you get married in this church? <clears throat> and the first thing you have to do is you have to have your tithe record checked. Make sure you're tithing. <laughs> now, I think you ought to tithe. I'm, I'm not against that, but I don't think that that ought to be a prerequisite to get married in the church. Prerequisite to get married in the church. Second thing is, the, a pastor had to be assigned to you to find out what ministry you're really involved in. Because you can't get married in the church if you're not tithing and then you're not ministering in the church. Well, I think you ought to be in ministry. But let me tell you something. I've had, I've had where's Marion at? Marion in here? She's in the kid. Oh, good. He's in with the kids. 
I don't like Marion. I'm going to tell you why. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, I've known, I've known uh, uh, his wife's dad for, for 100 years. We got arrested together in Raytown many years ago. We went out there, an old place there, and we were shooting high-powered rifles right outside of Raytown. It was, it was like it was, you know, it was wilderness. Now he's, I'm firing an M14, he's firing an AR-15, and we're out there banging away, you know, and just having the time of our life shooting in one of these big round telephone poles out there. <laughs> it was, I was, you know, it's all grown up now, but it's where the, the lake, uh, Longview Lake was, is now. We're back there just having like two clams in, a, in the mud, banging away back there, you know, and this young little guy comes up, he's a conservation agent, and he, he's screaming and yelling, and, and this guy, well, the thing that I respected about him is, I'm there with an M14, he's there with an AR-15, and this guy has no gun at all, and he's yelling at us. <laughs> now, this is either Chuck Norris in disguise, <clears throat> Claude Von Damme, I'm not sure who it is, but if you got, you got enough whatever to come up to two guys without a gun and, and say you're under arrest... Here's my gun, I'm with you. You know what? There it is. And he gave us a ticket. He gave us a ticket. That's all we got. We got a ticket for shooting telephone poles, I guess. I'm not sure what it was. But anyway, I've known him for a long time. When we first started our church, Carrie got married, and because of our history, she wanted me to marry them. And I said, absolutely, I will. And uh, I had never met Marion. And, uh, you know, Marion was uh, somebody that uh, I met him the first time. I said, yeah. I said, uh, I'd be glad to marry you. And I said, you know what? I said, if you, uh, once we spend some time together talking about, uh, you know, marriage and helping, and he said, that would be fine. And Marion and I kind of hit it off right out of the thing. And that was, what, almost eight, nine years, eight years ago. And, uh, you know, Marion came to church that next Sunday, has never left since he's been back that Sunday. You know why? Because someone was willing to marry them without any kind of restrictions. You see, I look at marrying people as a ministry like anything else. I don't know how many people I've had in my church over the years that came to church because I was willing to marry them when nobody else would. Now, I may not like the situation they're in, but you know what? I'll take about any situation you're in if you give me three or four times to sit down and talk about the Bible and marriage and put it all together because I'll get you sooner or later. If you're gettable, I'll get you. And he's just a great story of that. Well, you had to have tithe. And, uh, and I never, I guarantee you, Marion tithes. I guarantee you he does. You know what? I never told him one thing about tithing. You know how he figured it out? Because he came and kept getting the Bible. And it's one of those things where I just, you know, we talked about, you know, things. And we, we had a fun time together. And he's been to church ever since. So you got to tithe. And you got to be in ministry. And then after you pass those two hurdles, if you want to use the main sanctuary of the church, it costs you $700. Then if you want to have a smaller room, well, we are missing the boat, guys. If you had a smaller room out there, it's another $300. Let me tell you how much you got to give the pastor. My point is this. If you go to a church and you support that church, you just can't keep taking from people all the time. You just can't. You got to give something back. You got to give something back. And you don't get a dollar and dime and nickel and dime and squeeze them out of people every time they do something. We got a bookstore back here. That bookstore is so far in the red, it'll never see the daylight of green. I see somebody back there, you know, looking at something. It's the first time visiting. I say, yeah, it's a good book. Here, go ahead and take it. If you all stand back there waiting for me to come back today, I ain't coming today. So, you know, somebody come up and said, well, so-and-so don't have a Bible. Here, give them a Bible. Uh, You know what? You got to give back. 
You, you, you know what? I'll tell you something. And you know this is true. Anybody that's been married three or four years, you know by now to make a marriage work, you both got to give to it. You know that? In marriage, you do three things. You give in, you give out, you give up. <laughs> it's that simple. <laughs> it's that simple. You got to give in, you got to give out, and you got to give up. And if you don't do it, and it's all your way, and take, 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 you'll see the judge. I don't know what to tell you. And it'll be a tougher one than the one you're probably living with. You know, many of God's people, they say they love God, and they never give a dime back to the very work that God used to save them. I mean, I've seen it all my life. I've seen it all my life. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says, now you like three by five cards? Here, here's some good ones for you. But this I say, this is a good principle. He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. That's the principle. You wonder why you ain't got nothing? Because you don't give nothing back to God. That's why. Every man according as he purposed in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly or necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always have all sufficiency in all things, that you may abound to every good work. Somebody says, well, I can't afford to. You can't afford not to. You see, real biblical love, real love always has giving with it. My favorite verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. If any man love God, the same is known of him. You know, people give things to people they love. That's just the way it is. I heard a pastor say one time, and it's a great illustration. <clears throat> Let's say my wife asks you and your wife out for dinner. And you're all excited. Boy, Pastor Bob, or Bob's going to, I hate Pastor Bob. Bob's coming to, to, to take us, we're going to go out to dinner together. And you're all excited about it. And we go down in the plaza, you know, and we go down there to, uh, you know, Ruth Crisp's or someplace, I don't know, whatever's at. And nice, fancy place. And we're sitting down there and we're having a wonderful meal. And we're talking about, well, I just love the church, Bob. Well, I'm glad you do. We're glad you're here. And, oh, you know what? We just learned. So, oh, I'm glad that's because we're always here. We have a great time. And dessert time comes. And I said, order whatever you want, you know. And, and they said, wow, man, this is so great. What pastor in any city would take people out and just take them to some place like this and just sit down and just talk and pay for the meal? It is absolutely incredible. And you're sitting there and your wife and you was blown away. So we're down, we drink our last cup of coffee, and, and uh, my wife looks at me, and she says, uh, are you ready, honey? And I said, yeah, I'm ready. And I said, you folks had up? Yeah. And I said, okay, now, do me a favor. My wife is going to pretend like she's going to the restroom. <laughs> and she's going to go in the restroom and hang out for just a little bit. So why don't you go with her? And Tom, why don't you go over here and, and that big glass case, they got all the fish and lobster. Just go kind of stand up there like you're looking at it. I'm going to go to the men's room and then you slip out. You go out with my wife and then once you guys are clear, I'll come back in and, 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 and make sure everything is still good and, and I'll meet you out there and we'll get out of the lot. Okay, go. Now you go ahead and do it. Because you're too embarrassed not to. But I guarantee you on the way home, it isn't going to be, I can't wait to hear that man preach tomorrow. <laughs> you're going to be shocked. You're going to be disillusioned. 
you're going to say, I can't believe it. His wife was part of it. Yeah, she's got this thing down. She's done this a lot. <laughs> I mean, and it was so nonchalant. It wasn't like we feel bad about this or our church is broke. We don't have any money. It was, it was you go do this. They've done this several, several, several times before. And you probably wouldn't even come back to church again. Some of God's people come to the churches of God. They get sirloin steak every Monday morning and Thursday, Sunday morning and Thursday night. They get everything that they want and get everything that they need. You know what? They walk out of here and never pick up the tab one time. I like that illustration. That's a good illustration. <laughs> if you love God, you give him things. It's just that simple. And you don't look for anything back. I think the greatest damaging thing that ever happened to American Christianity is, the, is taking your giving record on your income tax. You know, we're the only country that does that. I think it takes a lot of reward to the judgment seat of Christ because people do things uh, to get something back. And you know what? Biblical love is charity. The love that modern day Christianity has today puts out a worldly, sensual, fleshy love that has nothing to do with the Bible. The mood for God is set by music, lights, praise singers, praise bands, smoke, laser shows. You can't have the power of God without the character of God and charity. Charity. Giving of everything that you have based on God giving everything that he had for you is the only thing that it works. That's why charity is the number one characteristic of God. It's giving. That's what he's saying. He's saying here, you can speak in 10,000 tongues 24-7. But if you don't have the charity to give back what God has given to you unconditionally, you don't have anything. Now, you're going to want to mark verses 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 coming down through here because now he begins to define for us what charity is. Now he begins to list for us the character qualities of charity. And it's quite impressive. Charity in your heart and my heart based on the right heart attitude. And there's 16 characteristics of charity here, and this will define for you what charity is. And when you put it in this context, you see why changing the word to love, you lose all of this. You lose all of this. All right, verse 4. The first thing he says is charity suffereth long. Charity suffereth long. That's not just patience. That's suffering a long time with somebody. And that's not just putting up with the suffering that we put up with for the world because we love God. That's not, I mean, that's included in that, obviously. But that's putting up with people you deal with. You know, you got to, when you start to deal with people in a church, or you start to deal with God's people anytime or young Christians, you got to have ability to go suffer a long time with them. Some people pick it up quick. They get it and move out right away. Some people take them forever to get it. And some people never get it. It's just that simple. Long-suffering is one of the fruits of the Spirit, found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. He says, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. You know, I, I, I never give up on people. I take a lot of flack over my, over my years because I go, what some people say, too far with people. And uh, I, I just, I, I, I do that based on the fact that uh, I, I just can't get past the fact how far God went with me. I mean, first 21 years of my life, I was an absolute mess, and pretty much a mess after that, except I was God's mess after that. But you know what? God never gave up on me. Somebody said, well, you went with so-and-so forever and ever and ever, and then they just wound up hosing you. That may be true. 
But you forgot that that's the business we're in. The business I'm in is to do what's right without any conditions on it. And if you want to hose me, that's okay. I, at least I sleep at night knowing that I did exactly what God wanted me to do. And I take great comfort in that. I, I just can't get past the fact that how much God put up with me. And in dealing with people, I follow, I follow one simple, crucial concept. I never take it personal. Now, I don't mean this in a bad sense, but that if I'm a professional. And I don't mean a professional in the sense of, of a professional that is cold-hearted and indifferent. I mean a professional is somebody that understands the business that he's in. And I know I'm in the business to take it on the chin for Jesus Christ. I know that when people leave this church and they get mad at me, they're not really mad at me. How could you be mad at me? <laughs> Come on. I don't take it personal. You know why? Because I know you're not really mad at me. Your problem is with God. It just so happens that I stand up here every day or every Sunday and every Thursday and I preach what God says to you that you don't want to hear. You can't get to God, so you get to me. I can deal with that. I'm a professional. That's my job. My job is to take the hits. That's your job, too, if you ever figured it out. But that's my job. I don't take it personal. Somebody says, well, I don't like you. Well, I understand. There's times I don't like myself. I don't take it personal. In the ministry and dealing with people, you have to suffer along with them. And some of them are going to be very ugly people at times. They're going to do things to hurt you at times. They're going to go out of the way to do things to hurt you at times. You know what? The bottom line is if you do what's right and your God's in your life and you're doing it by the word of God, nobody's ever going to hurt you. Nobody's going to take from you. Nobody's ever going to destroy you. Man, my cold life, I've been in hot water so long, I've been hard-boiled, man. I get to the point where you, you, you just don't take it personal. You realize that there's certain things that come along with standing in that pulpit and preaching the truth to people who don't want to hear the truth. And sometimes it takes longer for some to get it than others. Some of you just grab it like that and run with it. Some of you fimble-fumble around and, and takes you a while to get it all figured out. And some of you, bless your hearts, you never get it figured out. And then he says, and is kind. Now, I'm going to talk to you something. Let me ask you a question. Anybody ever did you wrong in life? Anybody ever, you know, it's not necessarily you got to raise your hand or you got to answer, but because the answer is yes. Does anybody ever do you wrong? Maybe in this church. Anybody ever do you wrong? And you see, the bottom line is long-suffering, and he says, be kind. Be kind. Be kind one to another. And that's, you know, 1 Thessalonians 5.15. What a great verse. It says, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Render. What a great word that is. Render. You know what that word means in the Greek? It means render. <laughs> what a great word. What a great word that is. And he says, you don't render evil for evil. That's not the business we're in. We're to take it for the Lord. And when somebody screws it up, messes it up, even if they do it on purpose, my God, man, how many times in my life before I ever got it plugged together, and I still do, give God the short end of the stick every day of my life. But you see, that's charity. God should have given up on me a long time ago. That's why I just can't give up on somebody. You know, to give evil for good, that's of the devil. The human side is to give good for good. 
but to give good for evil. That's charity. That's godliness. That's long-suffering. Then the second thing he says in verse 4 is, Charity envieth not. Now, this is the main issue in 1 Corinthians 8, 3 that has led to the problems in the church at Corinth. God's people being envious. You know why we get envious of people? The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. That is a great verse. You need to put that on a 3 by 5 card. You know why people get envious of other people? First of all, because they're not satisfied with what they have. And you know why that is? Because second, they're not satisfied with who they are in Christ. That's why. You can't be satisfied with where you're at in Christ, know that God's in your life, have God in your life, be operating and doing things for God, be him as anybody. Because in that case, you're glad when somebody happens, something happens good to somebody. You don't think, well, why didn't that happen to me? Verse 4, the third thing, charity vaunteth not itself, nor is not puffed up. You see, to vaunt something is to lift it up. We're not to lift up ourselves. You see a lot of people like that in Christianity. You see, you see, you see pastors and people who just want to—they uh, want to be the center of attraction for everything, and they want everything. They don't want—they don't want to give anything back, but they want everything their way. And we're not to lift up ourselves, but we're to lift up Christ. John twelve thirty two. He said, "If you, I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me." You see, it's so easy to see the difference between when God establishes a man's ministry and when that man establishes it himself. I've seen young men all my life that want to establish ministries and don't want to do what's right and pay the tab to get it done. You know how they build a ministry? They build it by criticizing somebody else who built a ministry. It's the way it works. They lift themselves up by tearing somebody else down. It's not how it works. Not how it works in the Bible, anyhow. And that it leads to being puffed up. It leads to pride. It leads to an unteachable spirit. Look at verse 5. Does not behave itself unseemingly. You see, when a man loves God, his behavior is not improper. Some of God's people live one way on Monday through Saturday and then something else on Sunday. You don't have to be in this church very long to find out that there's people within our own midst who really behave unseemingly. They won't be appreciated when you do something for them. They live like the world on the outside. They show up on Sunday morning. It's true in any church. It's just the way it is. I mean, you, you just, it just, you, it's just the way it goes in life. Some of God's people live one way Monday through Saturday and then on, show up on Sunday morning. Boy, it's just everything. They just want to pretend it's fine. It doesn't matter that they live like the world. They cuss. They do this. They do that. They do all the things the world does. Hey, let me tell you something. There are some people you work with probably that you can never get to come to this church or any other church simply because of the unchristian behavior you display Monday through Saturday and you don't even know it. They watch what you do. Bible says no man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. How many times you did something nice for somebody and tried to help somebody and they were unappreciative of it? How many times did, did you try to help somebody and all you got back from it by doing it was how stupid and how selfless they are and how all they care about is themselves? You know what? It's the way it is. Don't let that take away from you what God put in your heart to do. Because charity doesn't look for nothing back. Charity simply does it because it's the right thing to do. That's how it works. Verse 5, seeketh not her own. Notice the word her here. That'll go back to Proverbs. All through the book of Proverbs, wisdom is likened to a female. Don't let that get out too far, guys. 
And the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 is a picture of the church with the wisdom of God, and she's doing the things of the ministry. See, if you love God, you'll put others first, and you'll put yourself last. God first, others second, you and me last. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he did for you and me. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might become rich. The Bible says the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Verse 5 says, The next thing is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. You know, you can tell a lot about a person by what they get angry about. I've seen uh, situations uh, between God's people that I think are horrendous. I've seen, I've seen people over the years, I've seen Christians that couldn't work out a marriage and couldn't get the thing to work, and that's bad enough. And my, my thing is, I don't know, hey, if you can't make it work and you try to make it work and you can't make it work, then you got to try to at least be friends when it's done. But boy, I'll tell you what, I've seen some over the years, I've seen some of the most horrendous uh, behavior and, and women and men, uh, ex-spouses going after each other and hating each other and, and uh, vindictive about each other and revenge. And, and they do this simply for the purpose of hurting or getting even with that person. And I, I look at that thing and I say to myself, is that what Jesus would do? No, that's what the flesh does, you see. Those aren't the characteristics of Christ. I've seen people in relationships, and, you know, the relationship, they never got married, a relationship didn't work out, and for whatever. And so they get an attitude about it. Instead of looking at it and saying, well, you know what, if God is really in control of my life, and God is really in charge, and God taking this thing out, then be satisfied with that. No, 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 no. They just go out and trash each other down the road of life, and then wonder why everybody around them says, wow, I don't want to go to your church. Well, if that's the way Christians act, see, Not easily provoked. And then here's a good one. You want this on a three by five card? Thinketh no evil. Boy, that's a good one. Now you take that home and work on it for a while. You take that the next somebody does you wrong. And your first thought is to think how evil they are or how terrible they are or how worthless they are or how you can't stand being around them. You say, where does that come from? That comes from the way God thought with you the first time he saw you. If it wasn't for Christ, God wouldn't have anything to do with any of us. And you know what? We need to look at people sometimes through Christ. That's charity. Thinketh no evil. You know, I have something I always try to do. And I get a lot of flack for this over the years, too. I always try to focus on the good in people and not the bad. We all got bad. I could find something wrong with every one of you. If I wanted to, you could find something wrong with me. But what profit does that do? If you're here this morning, that says something. If you want to learn the Bible and you're here on Thursday night, that says something. If you're doing your work and you're getting into the Bible and learning your Bible basics and want to get involved in ministry and want to do something, that's a statement. Why am I going to not take the good and focus on that and cultivate that? Why am I just going to focus on a negative in your life and look at all the things that I don't like about you? If God would have done that with us, folks, we'd all be in hell this morning. This is charity. This is why you never change that word to love, man. You can fall in love and fall out of love real quick, but you can't charity. <laughs> thinketh no evil. I told you before, I don't care where you've, what you've done in life. I don't care where you've been, what you've come from, or whatever you're at. All I care about is where you're at now and what you want to do. The Bible says, thinketh no evil. Now, what do you do with that? It drives me crazy, man. Somebody, people, that all they do is just talk about the negative in people. They can't find one good thing about anybody. It's always the negative. Every time you go around them, it's just ne- it just drives me nuts. 
And it drives me nuts because all I see is when God looked at me and you, that's exactly what he saw, and he gave me the handout of charity. You got to try it sometime. Maybe you need to take a look at yourself. Then verse 6, the eighth one, rejoiceth not in iniquity. If you love God like you should, then you're not happy when a brother or sister falls. There's times that, you know, a pastor will uh, lose his church because of some uh, bad judgment or sin that he made in his life. You know, I, I, I never laugh at those things. I never make fun of those things. Uh, it always bothers me. And maybe the guy was stupid and made some bad choices. That's fine. But the bottom line is this. I look beyond that. Anytime that happens, it's the cause of Christ that suffers. It's the cause of Christ that suffers. It brings a reproach to Christ's name. And that's, that's, that's the most terrible thing about it. We're all human. We all make mistakes. We all deserve what we get. But Christ doesn't deserve the bad rap that he gets. And sometimes he gets the rap because of some of the dumb things that we do. But rejoices in truth. That's the ninth one. Oh, I love truth as long as it doesn't point it at me. Paul said one time in Galatians 4, 16, he says, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? You know, we, I, I, I'm telling you right now, you look out for any man who doesn't rejoice in hard preaching and in your face teaching of the Word of God. There's seven things in that Bible that Bible says that they rejoice over in heaven. You ought to make those seven things the things you rejoice over in heaven, and every one of them have to do with truth, 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 truth. Then verse 7, he says, charity beareth all things. You have to bear some things in your life, don't you? We have to bear our kids growing up. We have to bear issues in life. We have to bear through marriage and problems and the potholes of marriages. Issues with our job. We have to uh, deal with issues and bear things with people you work with. This is what Romans 15.1 says. You that are spiritual ought to bear, bear, bear the infirmities of the weak. He says he believeth all things. That's Bible principles. You know, you encourage yourself in the Word of God. That's why I keep putting you down to get the biblical principles down. Biblical principles, believing all things will help you bear all things. Then he says, hopeth all things. That's the promises. There's a difference between a principle and a promise. You see, a, pro a, a, a promise will always be a principle, but a principle won't always necessarily be a promise. But when he says, hopeth all things, <coughs> that's the promises of God you hang on to. And where believing all things helps you bear all things, hoping in all things helps you endure all things. And a Christian who loves God will endure everything the world, the flesh, and the devil throws at him. He's called to endure the persecution and tribulation, 2 Thessalonians 1.4. He's called to endure a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. Now, this is what Paul meant when you look at these 16 characteristics. <clears throat> now you want to go back and look at 1231. Remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago <clears throat> in that last, last, last verse in that chapter 12, where he says, consider the best gifts and I'll show you a more excellent way. Now you know what the more excellent way is. The more excellent way above all the gifts is charity. Charity is the greatest single gift that you and I can have because charity is the character of God. <clears throat> and you will never have the power of God in your life to do anything for God till you first get the character of God in your life, and that's what's missing in the church at Corinth. So you know what they're doing? They're doing the same thing that most people do. 
they're manufacturing their own spirituality by setting up tongues and unknown tongues and arguing about who baptized who. Then look at verse 8 here. We've got to close here. Look at verse 8. Charity never faileth, but whether they be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether they be tongues, they shall cease. Whether they be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Now, this is really the key verse of the whole chapter. Charity never faileth, but whether they be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether they be tongues, they shall cease. Whether they be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Now, this is really the key verse of the whole chapter. And uh, this verse clearly tells us that the temporary gifts given to the apostles in the early book of Acts, like we've already saw, they're only temporary. And in time, they'll cease. You see, but the character of God's charity will never cease. It'll never fail. Charity is something that you have to have and I have to have in my life before we ever get the power of God, no matter what it may be. Church of Corinth cares nothing about the character of God. They just want the great power of God. They want to be able to speak in tongues. And then very quickly here, I want to explain verse 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13 to you because this uh, is in this chapter. And there's two schools of thought on this, and I want to give them both to you, and then I want to show you how it probably lays out. He says, verse 9, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, and I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we look through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, and charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Now, <clears throat> there's two teachings on this passage, and I'm going to give them both to you very quickly. I got them both in my Bible. I think you ought to put them in yours, and then I'll tell you what you're probably dealing with here. Verse 9 and 10 says, We know in part <clears throat> and prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away with. Now, there's been a lot of controversy over the years of uh, what that exactly refers to when it says when that which is perfect is come. One school of thought teaches that when that which is perfect is come is the word of God. And uh, all these things in the early church in Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 7 and beyond were to Israel were temporary and they were not complete because they did not have the completed Bible. So you have God giving prophecies through individuals. And in time, once the Word of God is complete, those prophecies won't be any good anymore. They'll fail. Tongues were used because they didn't have the complete Word of God, and the tongues would cease. The knowledge they have would be the knowledge that deals with Israel around the first coming of Christ there, and that would vanish away. And, of course, the first standard teaching is that in light of the early book of Acts up to about 90 A.D., there was no complete Bible. When the Word of God came to be complete, the churches got the Word of God, then everything that was done in part, because all they had was an Old Testament, was done away with, and now everything was complete. And that's what they teach was when that which is perfect has come. Now, the second teaching on it is that the that which is perfect has come is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though, as he goes down through there, <coughs> we have the Bible, uh, we still don't know it all. Uh, verse 12 says, we look through a glass darkly. Uh, verse 11 says, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when, when, when Christ comes back, you know, we grow up unto him, and then for I shall know, verse 12, even as I also am known. So you have two ideas on it. One of them is the fact that it's the completed Bible. The other one is that it's Christ. Personally, 
I think that when you come to many places in the Bible, we already know that there's three applications of Scripture. You have a historical application. You have a doctrinal application. That'll be its prophetic teaching. And then you have a practical application. And I think that applies here. I think historically, this actually happened. The church at Corinth was in this time period, and they're dealing with all these issues. Doctrinally, I do believe it's dealing with the uh, coming of Christ. Uh, as it pertains to the nation of Israel, if you saw in Acts chapter 1 and all the issues concerning that, doctrinally, inspirationally, I also believe that it deals with the Word of God. You can't separate that when Christ comes back that He is the Word of God, Revelation chapter 19. So I think probably you've got a dual application there, which you find many, many times uh, in the Bible. And that'll be like a fifth or sixth level of understanding your Bible. But there's places in the Bible where you actually have a dual application. A couple of places back in Ezekiel and other places. Be that as it may, Bible teaches that in all Scripture there's a historical application as to history. There's a doctrinal application or a prophetic application to the future. And there's a practical application to your life and my life every day. And I think it fits into that aspect. And uh, the bottom line is the thing, and I would put both of those in your Bible because I think that's the way it probably lays out. But the bottom line and the thing that I want to really leave with you today is the greatest gift that God gives us is the gift is given by God to every man, and that trumps all else and all the gifts that we get, and that is charity. Charity is unconditional giving to others and God based on our unconditional uh, getting from God everything that he's given to us. It's easy in the world that we live in to lose sight of all that God has done for us. It's easy in the world that we live in <clears throat> with tough times to, to think that, you know, that we, we can't get along without uh, with, with giving back to God, that we have to have that. And truth of the matter is, I'm telling you right now, that verse says, God will always make all sufficiency in your life. It's part of the spiritual growth process of coming to trust God in everything that you do. The character of God is giving, and charity is unconditionally giving for you and for me to God first and to each other second, that we accept each other where we're at. It doesn't mean you're not going to have problem people that you don't have to deal with in a disciplined fashion. It's laid out in the Bible, but I'm not talking about that. That's a rare and accept form. I'm talking about every day in our lives with the people that we rub shoulder to shoulder with in our church and people that we know and work with. We have to accept them where they're at. I would love all of you to be higher down the ladder spiritually than where you're at. But you know what? That's not realistically. Instead of standing around and complaining that you're not, I choose rather to get involved in your life to help you get there. That's what we need to do. That's a great chapter. Next week, we'll get into chapter 14, and we'll really begin to take some things apart, and we'll put, the, put this whole thing together in this three-chapter package. Well, let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do love you. Thank you for all that you do.